and welcome to The Fandom Show, the podcast where we learn about fantastic fandoms by talking to our favorites about their favorites. I'm Kaya Green. And I'm Stephanie Malik. And today we are talking about, what's this? What's this? It's Nightmare Before Christmas! Yeah! Yeah! yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't think of a better joke. It just seemed like it was really appropriate. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It fits. Oh, good. I'm glad you approve. Of course I do. You think I don't like using lyrics as conversation? That's my favorite thing. I also just like love the, just the straight up nature of walking around somewhere and going, what's this? What's this? Constantly. Honestly, we should all do it more. Yeah, I agree. The sense of wonder in the world, of uh, figuring out everything as it, it presents itself. That's right. Exactly. It's very pure. Um, Steph. What do you know about The Nightmare Before Christmas? Well, I've seen it many times. I I have very nice, warm, cozy feelings about this movie. Uh, I saw it in theaters when it first came out. Um, watched a lot of documentaries about it. I feel fairly... Uh, I, I have my own strong feelings about it, and I, they're positive. Um, but I don't want to get into too many details. But I feel like I know a good amount. I cosplayed as Oogie Boogie. Once at, uh, no, I was Jack Skellington and I made an Oogie Boogie costume. Oh. And a bunch of Japanese tourists passed me and they took a bunch of photos with me. It was great. It was adorable. That's fun. Um, so yeah, I know a good amount. Uh, what about you, Kaya? Um, this is like one of the earliest movies I remember loving. Like this was one of the first movies that I was like, again, play it again. Because <laughs> there was, and I specifically, my mom had like a VHS recording of it. She had recorded it off the TV. So it was all like the, I didn't even know it had a title at the beginning because that part had cut off. Oh. So I just like, my memory of it is just like that crackly VHS. And I just have so many like warm, fuzzy feelings about that. Um, and yeah, just like as a, I like the three-year-old I was obsessed with this film and it just never quite went away. So I am very excited to talk about this today. Oh, uh, and you know who uh, knows... As much, if not way more than us, is our guest today, Alex Markman, <gasps> who is a queer screenwriter of TV games and more. Her most recent projects include the sci-fi original series, Astrid and Lily Save the World. Which rules. Uh, and WB Games Montreal's Gotham Knights, which is a brand new action RPG based on the characters from DC Comics. Uh, you might also know her work, Brad the Beaverton, or that one Betty White tweet she had that went viral. <laughs> oh, I got to know about that. Absolutely. Uh, Please uh, welcome Alex Markman. Alex, how are you doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am doing great. How are you guys? Oh, so, so thank good. You for so excited to talk about this. <laughs> very, I'm very excited. So excited to but talk about this. Before film. we get into that, what was the Betty White tweet? Oh, so I, I feel very strongly about Betty White. I was very upset when she left us last year, although comedic timing, like, to the very end. Oh, my um, God. It was the perfect exit. All those magazines that said 100, like, happy 100th. Right. She burned them all. Bless <laughs> her. Bless her heart. Bless her. Truly. Um, love the Golden Girls. Love, just love Betty White. Anyway, so when she unfortunately passed on New Year's Eve last year, I was very upset. So I tweeted uh, this post about uh, a number of her accomplishments, as much as you can cover in 240 characters, ending off with the word legend doesn't even begin to cover it. Just thinking, you know, my small Twitter following would enjoy it. And then it just kept growing and growing. And... It got something like 230,000 likes wow. or something. What? Um, I was getting uh, texts from my friends for the next several days of all the people who had screenshotted it and reposted it oh on my Instagram, God. including, including 
Charisma Carpenter. Stop that. Stop that. I I know. I the Charisma Carpenter one really got me. There were a few different celebrities that did. I think maybe Brooke Shields reposted it or someone. I can't remember. (laughs) Um, I have to. I have a bunch of them bookmarked on Instagram (laughs) for days when I feel bad about myself. Um, but the Charisma Carpenter one really got me. Um, anyway, yeah, my Betty White tweet went viral and. Periodically, it still reappears on Instagram. Um, I'm anticipating, you know, New Year's this year. I might get a number of notifications. <laughs> oh my God, bless! Um, I love that. Well, you're you're uh, you're a dedicated nerd about many things, Betty White, Buffy. But today we are talking about Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes. Okay. So, if somebody knew absolutely nothing about Nightmare Before Christmas, how would you explain it to them? Perfection. Um, <laughs> and that's the podcast. End of the <laughs> Just, you know, the podcast is that one gif from, I think it's X-Men. Like, perfection. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I would describe it as an early 90s stop motion classic in which Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween, stumbles upon the holiday Christmas and decides that he is going to adopt it as his own holiday to deal with his midlife crisis and shenanigans ensue. Perfect. Yeah, that's a perfect that's description. A Couldn't do it better perfect myself. Perfect synopsis. <laughs> um, so what is your origin story? How did you get into the nightmare before Christmas and what about it hooked you? I truly, this film is so integral to my personality and my childhood. I truly do not remember a time when it was not a part of my life. I don't remember being introduced to it. I also had a sketchy recorded VHS copy from TV. Um, But what was so special about The Nightmare Before Christmas, I can tell you. So we had another sketchy VHS that was a bunch of different Christmas specials. And, you know, my dad was super into VCRs and everything. So he had timed it and, you know, there was a little written out list on the back of, you know, if you fast forward to this minute, oh it's my God. Charlie Brown. If you fast forward to this minute, it's Frosty the Snowman, etc. But um, Nightmare Before Christmas had its own mm. VHS. Um, and I, I was just madly in love with it. Same thing. I would watch it again and again. I didn't for a long time have the soundtrack. So sometimes I would just watch it to listen to certain songs. Of course. This is the days before, well, long before Spotify or iTunes. Like, we're talking pre, what was it, Livewire? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Just watching those same scenes over and over again because I was obsessed with certain songs. Um, And then you have to memorize it. That's very important. Very important, (laughs) absolutely. Um, How else was I supposed to build my personality around this film? Um, (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) And then uh, another thing that was so significant about it, um, you know, I grew up at the time when most people um, eventually had VCR and DVD, um, uh, and a DVD player, rather. um, And my parents wouldn't replace most of the VHS um, film, or rather the films that we had on VHS, because why would you? It's a waste of money. Um, But Nightmare Before Christmas, we did. And I got (laughs) the special edition DVD for, I don't know, Christmas. Let's say Christmas, because that's more appropriate than birthday. (laughs) Um, One year, and I still have that DVD after having called my collection. Um, uh, Obviously, I still have that DVD. Yeah. it, it's just integral to me. I, I've been watching it every year, basically my entire life. We are we are both products of the early '90s, Nightmare Before Christmas, and I. And I just I 
Oh, I love this film. I love it so much. The other thing that I would bring up about it um, was sort of before it went through this kind of renaissance that you saw, I think, in the late aughts when Disney realized that they could merchandise the crap out of it mm-hmm. and then suddenly yeah. it was everywhere. The hot topic era. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I do. Um, <laughs> I was 13 at the time, so yeah. I did. Yeah, it was, it was right there for me. But it was kind of this niche thing that maybe not necessarily everyone was talking about because it wasn't... Um, you know, uh, uh, the big thing at the time. And it became an early bonding experience for my best friend and I because I discovered she loved it too. And this was before, again, everyone kind of rediscovered it and it became the cult classic or at least the uh, a cult classic to the extent that it is today. And it was that, you know, that Dr. Seuss thing of, wait, you're you're weird like I am? Yeah. Um, and uh, to this day, actually, when, well, now we do a Henry Selleck double feature on Halloween uh, itself, if neither of us have other commitments. Um, or if if we do, we'll just do it a couple days beforehand. But we do Coraline and The Nightmare Amazing. Before Christmas every year on Halloween. That's so, awesome. So you say you watch it annually on Halloween because there's a big controversy, uh, and we'll talk about this more in hot takes. But do you consider it a, a Halloween or a Christmas movie or an anytime movie? Should we discuss this in hot takes? Because I do have you go for it. Uh, go for it right now. When do you watch it? So you say Halloween is when you typically watch it. So we do have the tradition of watching it on Halloween. Um, I happily also watch it at Christmas, but I mean it's obviously a Passover movie. I don't know what people are talking about. Um, you know what? Super good point. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, a few years ago, Henry Selick, I believe it was Henry Selick, the director, because again, this is something that people have to talk about. And Henry Selleck is like, what are you talking about? It's a Halloween movie. It uh, makes me, this is such a deep cut. It makes me think of, you know, in the, uh, back in the day of broadcast television, pre-streaming, and so uh, all the major shows would have like a Thanksgiving episode and a Christmas episode and whatnot, right? Yep. But networks were often very wary of them because they didn't play well in syndication, which, you know, if you don't know what syndication is, it was when they would sell off seasons of shows to cable affiliates and make a ton of money. That's where you would see reruns of Friends, et cetera. And they would always be like, oh, we're worried that, you know, Christmas episodes don't play well in syndication or whatever. People will watch these things at any time of year. Like, Absolutely. You're telling me when someone is binge-watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine for the 15th time on Netflix, this is definitely not talking about myself, <laughs> that they're going to skip the Halloween heist episodes just because it's Halloween? Heck Absolutely no. not. Some of the best episodes Heck of no. the damn show. Exactly. So um, <laughs> it's obviously a Passover movie, but it's also an any time of year movie. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think makes Nightmare Before Christmas such an enduring classic? Like, uh, why do you think it still resonates with people and kind of came back again? I mean, this is such a, I feel like this is almost a cop-out of a response. There's nothing like it. There is truly nothing like it. And people have tried. Yep. And you do see in the later work of both Tim Burton and Henry Selleck, you definitely see those um, elements of it that they brought to it. Like uh, Tim Burton would go on to do Corpse Bride. He would go on to do the uh, animated remake of Frankenweenie, Henry Selleck, Coraline, now Wendell Wilde, et cetera. But they don't, I wouldn't even quite put those films in the same class as Nightmare Before Christmas. There is something about it that is just so uniquely bizarre. <laughs> um, it, it's such a work of art and it, it taps into, um, I don't know, it just taps into something with people. Uh, adults love it. Kids love it. Um, you know, I 
have met people of all ages, like kids who were uh, exposed to it 20 years after it came out and it still stands up to them. I think there's something so accessible about the story because you're dealing with these really sort of large holidays and these sort of broad characters, um, but also really relatable. Um, I also think that there is something really millennial about it and Jack is basically having a midlife <laughs> crisis. Yes. I'm like, oh, I hate what I'm doing. Well, Jack just need something different. Jack has a nine to five except it's in October to an October <laughs> and he's disillusioned with his lot in life and he's looking for something different um, and he discovers it only to realize that, you know what, maybe routine isn't so bad. And, yeah. you know, he can... Uh, one of the things I really love about the ending in particular is that they still get to have Christmas. Like Santa brings Christmas to yeah. Halloween Town, and there's that beautiful moment at the end with the snow, and they realize that this can still be a part of their lives. It's just not like their holiday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is so beautiful. And yeah, um, so I feel like millennials in particular really <laughs> latch onto this film with good reason. Um, I mean, also, Jack can't tell someone is flirting with him to save his life, so he's obviously a lesbian. Um, <laughs> Honestly, in that suit, yes. Yeah, with those right? fingers? <laughs> oh, God. Um, and, like, he can take off his head. Imagine the possibilities. Yeah. So, look. <laughs> so many you know angles. I'm right. So like. <laughs> I, I think that sort of resonated with me as you're talking. Uh, it's just also why people, re like, connect to this movie. I think... It, it hasn't been done since, and it was made so carefully yes. and with so much love and attention. I think it's kind of the thing with Lord of the Rings also why mm -hmm. that movie endures is that the people who created it spent so much time on the details mm -hmm. and poured so much love into it, and it reads to me. Yeah. Throughout the throughout the entire thing, like you just see those little like fi tiny fingerprints on the little like it's beautiful, it's beautiful, absolutely. I, I think like similar to Lord of the Rings, one of the things that's lovely about this is like no one expected anything out of it. I think Tim Burton was becoming a name at the time, which mm -hmm. is, I, and I know is why they sort of attached him to it in a, a bigger way. It was supposed to be a TV special. Yeah, it, well, they weren't going to release it theatrically. It was originally developed as a TV special, and it had been sitting in development hell for ten years because he wrote the poem. Um, while he was an animator at Disney, and they were like, this is weird. No, thank you. Uh, uh, and, Sounds like Disney. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then he went off to have great success with, I believe it was the uh, Pee Wee film, and then Batman, yep. and they were like, oh, he's becoming a name, as you were saying, and they wanted to bring him back, and I... I don't know if it was Disney that revived the project or rather they brought him back and he said, well, this is the project I want to make. I'm not clear on those details. Um, but that's effectively what happened. But yeah, they were developing it as a TV special, which I think is also part of the reason it's so short. Yeah. Because um, it was, I was just reading about this today that it was sort of like very based on Rankin Bass. I was just going to ask if it yeah. was that like same idea for holiday specials. It was specials. exactly that. Like the, I think, I think he planned on having it having it run every Christmas, like that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's what it was developed for. And then I, I don't even really know what led to it getting the release that it did. I know that they released it through their niche um, distributor, which was uh, Buena Vista, I think is how you oh, say yeah, it. Yeah, uh, totally. Rather than Walt Disney Pictures. Oh, um, cowards. Because, <laughs> because it is a little weird, right? And it wasn't quite Disney's brand um, until they realized they could make money off it. And, and then they were like, this is Disney. Disney. <laughs> um, so my uh, my icon, my avatar on Disney Plus is Jack Skellington. Yeah, I love that. So, um, but yeah, it was developed as a, a TV special. 
That's. I just think it was so unexpected. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't have expectations for something like that to make it what it was. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the fact that Disney didn't really want to be associated with it probably helped it a lot Mm -hmm. because they were probably a lot more hands off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no one was going in and being like, I'm going to watch Beauty and the Beast now. Yeah. And in Halloween. And Disney had such a. uh, They've always had a very clear brand. Um, But in the 90s in particular, it's the Disney Renaissance, right? They're really trying to get back to what made those classic Disney films really work because the Disney films of the 70s and the 80s, not coincidentally when Selleck and Tim Burton were coming up as Disney animators, were darker and necessarily didn't, uh, or rather didn't necessarily um, hit the way they had been hoping to, like the Black Cauldron and stuff. They were, you know, the weirder stuff, right? The Aristocats. (laughs) Why? I love the Disney Renaissance. Those are some of my favorite films of all time. But can you imagine if they had tried to fit The Nightmare Before Christmas into that mold. It would have been too weird. It, it would have been weird for a weird film, yeah. right? But it just wouldn't quite have worked. So yeah, I do believe um, it worked in their favor to um, be a bit more hands-off with that film. Yeah, because from what I understand, that like uh, they, they tried a couple things. Like, they were going to give Jack eyes, I was reading today. I think I... I've... I think I heard about this and deliberately didn't look up pictures of it because yeah. I was like, oh God, what would I think that it was Tim like? Burton specifically was like, Absolutely no, not. he cannot have eyes. That yeah. is not correct. They and wanted to give him like big Disney eyes that were like cute and stuff, which oh. I get because like it's a fundamental animation pr- uh, principle that you need eyes to connect with them. Also, I love that they don't. But that'd be so creepy. It in would that be so face. creepy. But he also kind of does have those big Disney eyes. They're just big Disney craters. Yeah, like, that's right. Like, but it's very emotional, right? It kind of reminds me of modern superhero movies where they like allow Peter Parker's mask to kind of emote yeah. to get him the illusion of that kind of thing. Oh, that's um, a really good point. Whereas, you know, like Jack, there were, I can't remember, but I think well over a hundred different heads for the puppet uh, because he is so expressive. He has so many different facial expressions, which again is why stop motion takes so long. Um, But yeah, I don't think we uh, lose anything by Jack not having eyes. There are there are plenty of eyes in Halloween Town to go around, <laughs> um, and not all of them are attached to people. Um, so, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the animation, like because obviously that is such a huge part of what made this thing work? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I don't know if they ever discussed not doing it as stop motion. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. Um, Henry Selick was involved very early on because Disney brought Tim Burton back and they were like, you know, we, we want to make a project with you. And he kind of handed it off to Selick. Like Tim Burton was still very involved, but Selick directed it. Yeah. And Selick is a, a stop motion person, you know, first and foremost. He worked as an in-betweener and as a storyboard artist, I believe, but the stop motion is really his thing. I don't know that they ever actually discussed doing it as anything other than stop motion, but that uh, it's such a long process, as we were saying. So Tim Burton, basically, he had written this poem, which was kind of a dark Seussian take on the night before Christmas, and he had a bunch of character sketches. That was it. Um, and the film, uh, it, animation has a way of, you know, um, live action and television have a much more linear production pipeline. You know, you get a script and then you go produce it and then you edit it and then it goes out in the world. Animation, there tends to be a lot, it tends to be a lot more kind of cyclical. So, um, you know, 
they will be reviewing the dailies from the previous day and the art department and the screenwriter were going back and forth and the screenwriter actually came on comparatively late. There was already, the film was in full-blown production before they brought on a screenwriter. I'm so what? wild. Uh, Oh, I know, I know. Uh, my, the screenwriter in me feels a little bit with that. But also, actually, this is an interesting tidbit uh, that I learned recently. So the screenwriter, Carolyn Thompson, or Caroline, I'm actually not sure how to say it. Sorry, Ms. Thompson. Um, oh, thank you for listening for this apology. <laughs> <laughs> was dating Danny Elfman <gasps> at the time. Yeah. And he was making the songs and he would literally test the songs out on her before he took them to Tim Burton and be like, well, what do you think of this? And all the major emotional beats of the story are in the songs, mm, yeah. uh, but it's very sort of modern musical style. Um, and then they were like, you know, this just isn't coming together. We need to bring a screenwriter on. I was like, hey, she knows everything about the project. Let's bring her on. Dang, uh, but by then it was in full-blown production. So a lot of it was her and the art team going back and forth. Like she would write a script, send it off to the art team. They would try to realize certain scenes, send her back sketches or potentially finished shots. And it was, it was really collaborative, essentially. Um, but I think it took them about three years to make the film itself. Cause I mean, with stop motion, you are animating and shooting every single frame, not just the shots, every single frame. Uh, and I believe it took them about three years. I think they started in 1990 and it was released in 93. Which is wild. Oh That's so, like, uh, for a filmmaking process, most of the time a year, mm -hmm. maybe a little over a year are kind of the, the typical timelines. Yeah. So woof, that's such a lot. The patience required to do that kind of thing is foreign to me. Beyond I'll take about this for later. Oh, oh yeah? Oh, shit. <laughs> um, I so, mean, you can tell us now. Can we swear on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. I probably should have checked yeah. that first. Okay. <laughs> uh, Thank fuck. Okay. Uh, so you brought up Danny Elfman, uh, who obviously did a lot of music for it. Uh, how do you feel about his contribution to it? Uh, like, what are your feelings about the music of this? I, I can't imagine this film without Danny Elfman. I mean, uh, Danny Elfman has come become kind of synonymous with Tim Burton because of their many collaborations, but I think a lot of uh, people, well, let's say a lot of casual fans of The Nightmare Before Christmas don't know that Danny Elfman is also the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Yeah. And the reason he did that was because, again, he wrote these songs, and as is very typical when you're working in this kind of hobbled together way he recorded the demos himself and in so doing found that he really connected to the role and had gone through what jack was going through which as we've established i guess we all do in our 30s <laughs> yeah, totally. um and he was like you know i really want to do it i i think danny elfman's voice is all over this film not in an overpowering way i think uh one of the beautiful things about this and about a lot of stop motion is that you can really see the in the contributions of the different people um that made it what it is without you know uh in without overpowering it it's not you know um you can only see one person's influence, which you sometimes do see in certain films and movies that I shall not name. Um, <laughs> totally. You yeah. know who you are. <laughs> but I can't imagine it without Danny Elfman. I really can't. The songs in particular, I just, I, I think they add so much to it. Um, you know, again, as I was saying, that was one of the earliest things I loved about the film is the songs are so catchy. I find them all very different. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite? Oh, it changes every time I watch it, is the truth. But right now, in your gut. 
What, like, for at this moment? I often go back to Kidnap the Sandy Claws. Oh, that's a great song. Because also, I like, I love Catherine O'Hara. She's so good in this. Deep, abiding love of Catherine O'Hara. And again, she's the voice of Sally, but I don't know that a lot of casual fans realize she's also the voice of Shock, and I love her it's as Shock. And so good. The fact that she just has no patience for her kind of idiot brothers, and just, oh, it's just Ugh. so good. And it... You know, I, I literally tweeted about this in October. It's like <laughs> this delightful, catchy little song about essentially murdering an old man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... By three children, yeah. sort of. <laughs> Who but Danny Elfman could give us that, you know? Yeah. And make it cute and whimsical. Exactly. Cute and whimsical murder. Oh. It's like the original murder podcast. <laughs> like, <I'm... laughs> Steph, do you have a favorite song? Uh, I, it does change as well. Yeah, um, totally. Obviously, the, the opening uh, song is just iconic. It's very Belle... Uh, from Beauty and the Beast walking mm-hmm. into the town where you're meeting all the people and you're getting their stories right off. It's a classic opening number. But I'd say right now, Jack's Lament is just, I, I feel it, man, as I age especially. And I'm just like, oh, everything is so hard. <laughs> it's very difficult to live. I would uh, like to reiterate my theory about why millennials love this <laughs> so much. 100%. Do you have a favorite? I mean, uh, we've named uh, all of the ones that I swap out, so I'm going to have to throw in what's this. I find yes. that, like, I can't imagine a better way to do that exposition of, hey, I've found this new place and it's absolutely delightful. It captures that sort of, like, oh, I've been hit by just a freight train of pure enthusiasm that yeah. I think like a lot of nerds know what that feels like of just like, oh my God, I I can't believe this. And even just the construction of the course, like what's this? What's this? The like immediate jumping of excitement. Yeah. So I see it, huh? Oh, it's yeah. like, it's infectious when you listen to it's it. It's great songwriting. It, it kind of, um, for me, evokes that... Um, uh, that feeling of, of like literally Christmas morning, being yeah. a little kid unwrapping those presents, like that is kind of what Jack is going through seeing Christmas for the first time. It's a sense of boyish wonder. Yeah. Um, it's just beautiful. I have two really nerdy deep cuts for you. Oh, I want it. Um, when you were talking about what's this as such a great way of exposition, I don't know if you ever saw this. This is going back like 10 years now, but... Uh, there was a Game of Thrones parody called Who's This? <laughs> oh, I can see exactly where this is going. Go- Bron? Because <laughs> going through all the different characters, and it was only like the first two or three seasons oh in, God. and they're also oh. making fun of the fact that as soon as you know who someone is, they die, and which is like... <laughs> I found Game of Thrones really hard to get into in those early seasons, not because it isn't incredible. It absolutely is just a feat of filmmaking. But there's so much information. There's so many people. And, like, I literally, you know, I have the bad habit of looking at my phone or doing other things while watching TV. I was in university when Game of Thrones came out. I was like, I don't have an hour each week to sit down and, like, take notes while watching television. Um, So highly recommend. I do believe it's still on YouTube. The (laughs) other thing... The other thing I will tell you is in terms of my favorite songs swapping in and out, uh, this is super gay. So The Love of My Life, Evan Rachel Wood, (laughs) has a band, uh, a duo called Evan and Zane with Zane Carney, who's just this amazing multi-instrumentalist. And they usually do a Halloween show every year. And in the pandemic, they started doing virtual ones, which meant that I could finally see them perform. And they usually do a song from The Nightmare Before Christmas. And they also swap it out every year. And they've done 
tons of that. They did Jack's Obsession, which is an insane song with like seven key changes. Um, <sighs> so this also heavily influences which song I tend to have in my head around Halloween time is which song the love of my life happened to <laughs> that makes sense yeah cover on her virtual halloween show just to take this in a very very niche very gay direction what was it this year i don't think they did a, they didn't do a virtual one this year they Evan. were going to and then something happened i got some very vague apology oh. email from them it was it was Sweet. Um, but yeah, Evan owes me a nightmare before Christmas <laughs> cover. <laughs> and Jack's obsession is the one where he's he figures out he's gonna make his own Christmas, right? That one? Um at that point they know they want to make their own Christmas, but they don't know how. So Jack's oh. obsession is what when he's, he's like doing, doing the math on the yeah. board. Oh like, yeah. Okay. Dolls and toys confuse me so confound it all. I love yes, it. Yes, so. that song. Yes, I love that song. So good. I love that song. Now imagine someone trying to sing that in a live performance with a single accompanist. So difficult. So much energy. Oh yeah. my goodness. She's amazing. I won't oh apologize. <laughs> when you think about it though, this movie is a really excellent example of how to do a character turn in a song because every plot turn is is buried in those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're so efficient. Yeah, and there's <laughs> well like big emotional swings. Because in a musical, those your song should be when the emotion is so big that you can't speak it anymore. Mm-hmm. And this does a beautiful job of that. Absolutely. Um, so we know there's many wonderful characters in this movie. Do you have any favorite residents of Halloween Town? My uh, my man, the mayor, I got to say, oh, who I brought a little version of with me for emotional support <laughs> while adorable. recording this podcast. Um, I oh, I just love him so much. The elected official line um, <laughs> about how he can't make decisions. He's just an elected official. Um, I mean, has there been any better <laughs> summation of modern politics? Absolutely in film? not. Um, Useless little man, and I love it. <laughs> he's just so relatable. The way he can suddenly well, maybe I'm telling you too much about myself, but the way he can suddenly go from like, yeah, I'm so happy, everything's great, to just turning his head. And everything is on fire. I, well, I love him so much. Um, and I will also, I mean, I already talked about my love of shock, uh, but lock, shock, and barrel as well. I got to give a shout out to my man, Zero. Oh, Zero. Zero. He's so cute. Zero's think so cute. Zero is the unsung hero of this film. <laughs> Truly, though. Like Insert there's... like a zero to hero interlude <laughs> oh. here, please. Zero's very much the dog from a Grinch stole yes. Christmas. Like, they're just like, I'm with you, but maybe don't. Have we considered not stealing stuff? <laughs> Let's be good. The Grinch, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas was also an early influence on this. The, I think not only the story, but the animated special as yeah. well. They consulted a lot in the early days of development for this film. Um, but yeah, also Zero doesn't get a lot of merch, and a lot of the merch they make is Great. Uh, nose is so perfect. It's so yeah. perfect. But I'm I'm very specific about the merch I have in my house, which you wouldn't know from the amount that I have. But I am very particular, um, and it's hard to find good zero merch. Um, I believe so it. I, I I love him. I mean, again, being very gay and automatically going to the animal character. But yeah, I, I love oh, I love my real. man Zero. Oh, that's so real. Yeah. Do you identify? You mentioned that there's like you feel a connection to the mayor, but do you, if you had to pick one character that you're like, that's me. Oh, I'm shock. <laughs> Do you need an old man kidnapped and murdered? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Don't listen to this, police, please. Oh, my God. This, this, this podcast brought to you by kidnapping and murdering. <laughs> it's fine. I have a brother. I can blame it on. Um, no, uh, I Yeah, probably the mayor. 
Probably. I yeah. also really identify with Jack. I also don't know when a woman is flirting with me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Love a good suit. Uh, <laughs> the character, Kaya, if you had to pick one? I kind of like the nervous werewolf. Um, yes. I don't know what his name is. There's quite quite a lot of side characters who's like kind of go, I'm sure they have names, and if I were to check the credits, they have names. But I don't know, something about that guy I've always really, really enjoyed, that he's just like... I don't know. He's so big and burly, and yet he has kind of this, like, oh, is this okay? This little anxious <laughs> energy. Yeah, I, I kind of really enjoy him. I don't know. All of, the, all of them have their own, like, lovely little qualities that whenever they pop up, I'm a huge, huge fan of. Um, uh, it's really hard to pick. Steph? It, 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 I, it's the mayor. I it's feel, the mayor. I feel the mayor just is all of us yes. as just being like, I'm trying to live my life. Everything's fine. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Everything's terrible. Yeah. Once again, why millennials love this <laughs> film? <laughs> One detail I love on the mayor that like gets overlooked a lot his spider tie? Oh, yeah. And it comes so to good. life. Comes right? right? And he just yeah. punches it. <laughs> like, sit down. <laughs> so Not funny. now, spider tie. <laughs> um, also, it, he's not fleshed out very much. I love the tree with the skeletons. Yeah. Yes. Every time he shows up, I'm like, fucking love that yeah, tree. Yeah, though uh, the people have had readings of that tree that are not great because it is a bunch of bodies hanging from a tree. Oh, that didn't occur to me until right now. Yeah, I yeah. can see why that's probably not yeah, a great, it's great not reading. Great. Okay, I retract my statement. Um, I also will add in uh, a little shout out and a personal feeling towards Santa, who's just like trying to be a decent guy. Just yeah. like, fuck you guys, man. Just let me do. Come on, just let me do my thing. Here, you can have Christmas too, just go away. <laughs> Honestly, the grumpiest version of Santa and also my favorite. Yeah, it feels accurate. <laughs> Relatable, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> uh, so you mentioned that you have some uh, Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise. Do you, uh, and that you're very specific about it. What are some of your like prized possessions in your collection? Uh, I have a display of lock, shock, and barrel masks right <gasps> at the entrance of my house. Cool. Uh, I have managed to come across some good Zero stuff, uh, finally. Um, I have uh, a, a Funko uh, that I think I got at Fan Expo. Um, and now the, I can't remember the actual name of the company, but the toys are called Fluffy Puffies, and they're essentially just little figurines of certain characters. Um, I got a Kiro from Card Captors for a friend oh. of mine, and I got a Zero for myself. Cute. Uh, I have some movie moments of Jack, so I have him on the fountain at the beginning. Um, oh, I have hard. him lying on the angel in the cemetery towards <gasps> the end of the film, which I is one of my favorite shots. Yeah, oh, so, so beautiful. Good. Beautiful. Um, and one of the <laughs> weirder ones that I am very proud to own is I actually have a little figure of Lock, Shock, and Barrel in the bathtub um, on their way to kidnap Sandy Claus in my bathroom. Yay! Uh, <laughs> oh, that's so cute. That bathtub is also an underrated character. The also, the, the little feet with the twirling. The little feet. Like, bringing claw feet to life? Come on. Ugh. That level of detail and just... I don't know how your brain would work to be like, yeah, they'll have a clawfoot tub, but it comes to life. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like the spider. It's mm -hmm. like every opportunity to put a detail in, they did it. Mm -hmm. Or to bring something to life. Yeah, like absolutely. To make it an animated uh, object itself. Oh, Which I think cool. is really, you know, a testament to Henry Selig. I mean, we were talking about, we all have these side characters that we love and we don't even necessarily know their names. They might have two lines in the movie, but they have such a um, iconic 
look yeah, and like design. Baby. The yeah, baby the and creepy the little baby, vampire yeah. with the wings who walks oh, on his wings. Oh, the vampire wings. Or like Ooze, Ooze Doctor, yeah. that guy, Uzi Face. Or yeah. those like three vampires who are all like walking together all the time. Oh, yes. yes. Oh. Yeah, like literally the, every character you see, you're like, cool, cool, cool. It's <laughs> so memorable. And just, yeah, I, again, speaks to the amount of love that was put into this film. Um, similar to Lord of the Rings. I know yeah. a bunch of queer nerds sitting around talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but every, every time I watch this movie, I notice something I never I never noticed before, and I've been watching this movie my entire life. That's um, incredible. And it's only like I think seventy something minutes. It's just it's it it really is a work of art, and I I feel like that term gets overused. But yeah. I mean, this film's a masterpiece. And like visually too, mm-hmm. like even just talking about those like iconic visual moments, like we haven't even touched on like Oogie Boogie and the whole casino bit, mm-hmm. and or like the doors when you're walking in Seattle, like. There's so many beautiful moments that are iconic. Oh, the doors, yeah. yeah like I, I've, I know that like the doorknob shot. There's a shot where he like reaches for the doorknob of the mm-hmm. Christmas Town uh, door, the like tree and the tree in the tree. <laughs> um, and apparently, it took them forever to get that shot right, to get the like perfect reflection, so you could see Jack perfectly and see his hand, and like that's a shot that would be so easy to do in real life, Mm -hmm. but they clearly worked so hard to get perfect. Um, And for like, so split second to have that kind of visual attention to detail is incredible. I feel like stop motion in a lot of ways is kind of practical effects in their purest form because everything is performed, you know, uh, occasionally things like fire, wind, they might add digitally just because doing that in stop motion is virtually impossible. But it's all practical effects. It's manipulating the puppet. It's making sure it's lit uh, properly. Life-size sets to uh, shoot these tiny, tiny characters. It's just, it, it, it's unreal. Um, and yeah, it just it blows my mind. Totally. And like all the unique movement too. Mm-hmm. Like Sally moves so much differently than Jack yeah. does. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I'm obsessed with the way Jack moves. I, I, <laughs> since I was a kid, I was like, I want to do that. This, he's very spidery. Yeah. He just has these long limbs that he kind of like crawls across things almost. It satisfies my brain in a way I can't possibly describe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we've seen a lot of fan theories on the internet, uh, such as like everyone in Halloween Town is dead, or Lockstock and Barrel are the ones responsible for carving the pumpkins. Do you have any or any like fan theories that you've heard of that you uh, find juicy? I have a fan theory of my own. Ooh. Um, so th- uh, around the midpoint of the film, I think when Sally escapes from the doctor, um, she briefly th- sees a cat. I, th- I think she pets the cat. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm, um, and to me, uh, the cat looks uh, just a little too similar to the cat in Coraline, which came out about 15 years later and was also directed by Henry Selleck. And we know the cat in Coraline is able to traverse between worlds. <gasps> so my theory Whoa. is that there's a shared universe there. Whoa! That's cool, and I buy that. Mm-hmm. That That's is, because the, there is an alternate dimension element of Coraline, so it kind of fits perfectly. And many uh, alternate dimensions in the world of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, the cat doesn't look exactly the same, obviously, different studios, different times when the films were made, but they look similar enough that I'm like, mm, I, I think this is a shared universe, and I think the cats are the ones that can traverse them. And we all know cats disappear into other dimensions all yes, the time. Yeah, so. constantly. That's a real life thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, okay, well, on, in, on the subject of different dimensions, if you could go through any of the mysterious holiday doors, because there are quite a few of them there, 
Which one would you want to go through? Halloween Town. Halloween Town. I mean, yeah. like, I, I don't feel strongly enough about Thanksgiving to go through the Thanksgiving <laughs> door, especially because it's an American film. So I feel like the American Thanksgiving door, especially, would just be like a lot of football. And I'm like, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is not for me. St. Patrick's Day, no thank you. Um, that uh, does not seem like a kid appropriate door to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine an alternate movie where Jack goes through St. Patrick's Day? door and just becomes an alcoholic. I mean, honestly, that's the sequel to The Nightmare Before Christmas. That would check out, like, Jack now deals with his problems by going through the St. Patrick's Day door. That is very fun. I do love, like, the notion of that. I have a, a thing with Cabin in the Woods, if you've mm, seen that yeah. movie, where they have all those objects in the basement, and I want them to make sequels where they just pick different objects. Ooh. I love that with movies. It's like, I just want to see the different versions this could have been, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. So that would be fun. Thanksgiving Town. But yeah, Halloween Town all the way. Also, like, uh, as much as it's kind of violent and creepy, I feel like they're actually very nice. They are. Yeah. And they wouldn't, you know, murder me on the spot. Maybe I wouldn't go to a good boogie's house, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess he's dead, so, like, I only have to be afraid of his children. Um, <laughs> his scary, scary children. His very scary children. Be like, mm, you and your clawfoot tub can stay over but there. But are they his children? Because they refer to him as Mr. Oogie Boogie. That's true. Well, they call them, okay, oh, this is going to open a can of worms. They call them Boogie Boogie's boys. That's true. Also, Even though they're not all boys, which is one of my hot takes. <laughs> um, so I I don't know. I mean, he seems like a kind of abusive father figure. Yeah, I yeah, wouldn't yeah. be surprised. Absolutely. He's not a good dude. No. Uh, yeah, no, he's not He's not one we want to have parenting any children. Yeah. Uh, uh, Steph, would you go through a different uh, holiday door if you had the chance? Heck no. Halloween <laughs> is gay Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Halloween for, Halloween's just the best holiday period. It is. There's no pressure on you unless you're Jack, I guess, uh, in which case, sorry about it. Um, but no, there's no pressure. You can participate to the level that you want. I know we've talked about this. Scary, not scary. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can do Halloween however is right for you. You can stay home, watch movies. You can go out to parties. You can wear costumes. You can not wear costumes. You can do anything. You don't have yeah, to talk to your drunk uncle. It's the best. Absolutely. <laughs> Another reason to not go through the Thanksgiving door. Thank you. <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah. <laughs> you just go to a tense discussion about politics with your in-laws. You're just trying to be like, can we just watch a show? Please just put anything on the TV. Anything, please. Robot Chicken, I need you to do these different doors. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our, we always ask this at the end of uh, our question period is, what's the nerdiest thing you've ever done in relation to this fandom? Um... It's something I almost did. Does that count? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this, so there, unfortunately, so years ago uh, in Toronto, there was a Tim Burton art exhibit, I think at the Science Center. I might have that wrong. Um, and I wasn't able to go, and it has always crushed me. So uh, a few years ago now, they announced that there was going to be a Tim Burton art exhibit in Vegas. And I was very close to just getting on a plane to Vegas and going specifically for this. And the reason I didn't was I found out it wasn't his film art. It was oh. like a ode to you know, like Vegas show art or something. Ooh. I still don't really understand what it was. It was through the Neon Museum. So uh, it was pre presumably a lot of neon signage and whatnot. Which feels which, weird for Tim Burton. Which does feel weird Not for Tim Burton. It does like have merit as an exhibit, absolutely. I think it would have been cool, but it was not enough to get me to board a plane uh, in February and go yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> down there. Uh, and that was also February 2020. So Ooh. I'm also, uh, I feel like I dodged a bullet with that one, but yeah. I came very, very close. And honestly, if they ever tour that Tim Burton art exhibit again, um, 
as problematic a figure as Tim Burton is, I will, I don't know, enter every contest to get free tickets <laughs> so that none of the money goes to him, and then I will buy a plane ticket. So. Yeah. All of our favorites are problematic. <laughs> yes. Um, so we're just about to dive into hot takes, but before we do that, uh, this episode is brought to you by tpublic.com, where you're going to find your next favorite t-shirt. Uh, tpublic has unique and nerdy designs available on t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, mugs, stickers, phone cases, uh, notebooks, so many things you could get a design on. So you just have to find a design you love and you can get it on almost anything. One of the best things about it is if you see a design and you're like, oh my God, I have to have that. You can put it on any type of t-shirt. You can make it any color, any kind of fit. Um, so you can get exactly the t-shirt that you want to get it on. Um, and Public's holiday sales are still going strong. So you can get up to 35% off that's a lot of um, everything on the site until December 16th. So awesome. You've got three days left if you're listening to this the day this episode comes out. So you get on that. You go to our TeePublic, TeePublic.TheFandomShow.com to check it out. You can get a design. Honestly, Nightmare Before Christmas, there's hundreds of designs really relating stuff. to Nightmare Before Christmas. Some of them are very overt. And some of them, so one thing I like about TeePublic is I, I love my fandoms, but I don't necessarily want a always to be covered head to toe in them, but they also have like cool, subtle designs too, where only a fan of that thing will know it. And then you get to really find your people, which I love about TeePublic. Totally. And like, I think part of that is so many of them are made by indie artists, all of these designs um, that, you know, you get stuff that is really creative and really well thought out. And all of these indie artists are getting a fair commission for their work. So when you buy a t-shirt from TeePublic, you're supporting an indie artist and you're also supporting the show, which uh, I'm just going to say it rules. Yeah, we appreciate it. So head on over to tpublic.thefandomshow.com to check out all of our merch uh, and some of our favorite designs uh, from TeePublic. We go in and add them to our store constantly, so they're all related to past episodes that we've had, so you can get a shirt for any of your fandoms. That's tpublic.thefandomshow.com. And thank you to our t-shirt uh, parents for supporting this podcast and supporting uh, podcasts on our network. Thank you. Thank you. We love you, TeePublic. And now. We're delving into the spiciest of takes, the hottest takes. We went out to the internet to find all the creepy, creepy crawlies. Yeah, we went through those creepy doors. Yeah, we went through the creepy door of the internet, the scariest door of all doors. The one Jack will never touch. Absolutely. He'll see it and be like, yipey, dipey. Stay away. There's incels in there. (laughs) It's easier to be the king of Halloween town. Um, So what we've done is we compiled these, uh, and we're just going to read them off to you, and we'd love to get your hot takes, whether it's, uh, you know, a strong feeling, you're just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, either way. Uh, so this first one uh, is from Cinnamon on our Discord and also one of our patrons, Lydia Duncan. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being a patron. Uh, I heard before that The Nightmare Before Christmas is about cultural appropriation, and I think it's more complicated than that, but it has changed how I see the story now. That's interesting. I haven't heard that take before. Um, I would say there's absolutely merit to it, um, and I think it's a worthwhile discussion. What I would add to that is um, Henry Selleck talks about in the Nightmare Before Christmas book that I definitely don't have sitting next to me right now. Um, <laughs> no, you do, Alex. I can see it with my eyes. The mayor's on it. But he talks about how one of the things that drew him to the project, um, I think it was in this book. It's either this book or the Coraline book, which I also have. But he talks about what draws him, what drew him to the project was it was this sort of clash between worlds and what happens when you bring these two very different worlds together. In this case, it is 
um, Christmas and Halloween. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a through line in Henry Selick's work. You see it in Coraline with the real world versus yeah. the supposedly better other world. You see it uh, in Wendell and Wild, which just came out, uh, which just came out rather. Um, in, it's incredible. Uh, it's really good. Highly recommend. I'm very excited. Um, great representation, among other things. Yes. Um, but you see it in terms of um, mild spoilers for Wendell and Wild. Uh, but this young girl lives in this thriving community and then she is forced to move away and she comes back as a teenager and it has just been completely basically ruined this hometown of hers uh, to make way for a prison um, and nobody lives there anymore and it's just completely desolate so um, her sort of idealized version of this world versus what actually happened to it then there's also the underworld of her personal demons that literally live in what is presumably hell um, versus the real world that she lives in. Um, he also made a film called Monkey Bone, which I actually haven't had a chance to see yet, but it's a live action animation hybrid, which obviously brings about a clash between worlds. So I think it's absolutely a worthwhile discussion. I would be very interested actually to go and read a bit more about this because it's something I haven't honestly considered before. Um, I don't think it's what they were going for. Totally, yeah. Um, and I uh, think they were more going for that idea of the clash between worlds and what happens when you try to mash them together. Um, but yeah, in terms of cultural appropriation, uh, or reading it through that lens, I would say worthwhile discussion. I need to learn more about it. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say you can't culturally appropriate a Christian holiday. That's punchy. Ha! ha! Uh, yes! Uh, uh, Steph has the better answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no reverse racism funny. here. Like, uh, Halloween is definitely uh, lower on the the standing than They're uh, appropriating Saturnalia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I do see how it's a good metaphor for yes. it and why Absolutely. it doesn't yes. work because you don't understand what the all of these traditions are about. Yeah, you don't have context. Yeah, the, the way exactly. Jack misinterprets things and, like, robs them of their value is, I think, a useful example. Absolutely. Um, but also, yeah, that is weird in the context of a Christian holiday. I hadn't thought about yeah, yeah. it that way. Ooh, fascinating. Good take. Oh. Thoughtful take. Thoughtful take. So thoughtful. Uh, this Ooh. one comes from a former guest and friend of the podcast, Andy Hull. A Nightmare Before Christmas is a classic Tim Burton. Incredible art direction. Fun premise, but it's an hour and 16 minutes that feels like three hours. Time's an illusion, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I have always felt like it feels short, to be honest. It definitely has that TV special feel for me. Like when I, re I remember when I learned that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. It's so short and it feels like it was made to have commercial breaks. Yeah. Um, if you don't know what a commercial is. Uh, <laughs> Welcome, youths. Um, Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. I feel so cool. I <laughs> think that sounds like someone who just doesn't enjoy the movie that much, <laughs> and they're wrong. Oh! So. <laughs> Spicy take back at you, Andy. Yeah. I do feel like it goes fast, I think, especially because of all the music. Like, it's absolutely music. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I disagree. I think it sounds like maybe it's classic Tim Burton, and maybe classic Tim Burton isn't your thing, but also I would say it's not classic. Oh. Yeah. Classic Henry Selig. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I just want him to get the credit. He deserves the credit. Okay, he actually came out this year and said, you know, I think it's a little unfair that it's referred to as Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. I guess his influence is all over it, and we worked very closely on it, but it was really me and my team who brought that film to life. And I that is always such a green flag for me, especially with you know directors or anyone in that type of leadership role. Not only when 
they're, you know, trying to assert their credit, but credit for their team is such a yeah. green flag to me. So yeah. I, I really try not to elevate artists, as we've talked about, because the second you do, you find out that they lead a sex cult or something. <laughs> Disclaimer, I don't know that about Henry Selick. <laughs> um, but, um, Please be good, Henry. <laughs> Please be good, Henry. Um, but, yeah, I that was a real green flag for me, not only asserting that he, uh, you know, this really in a lot of ways was his film, but that it, it's a film that belongs to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah in, like, retrospect as a... Buffy fan. Yes, I'm bringing it up again. Yeah, you you get those Joss Whedon's where it's like, oh, it's a singular vision, so on and so forth. There, I really, truly, truly believe that as much as it can be marketed as such, there is no film, movie, uh, TV show that is a singular vision. All no. of them have teams, and if you don't acknowledge that, yeah, that that to me is a red flag. Especially with like series television and stop motion animation, where the collaboration is so integral and it's critical. Such, uh, like it's not a sprint or it's not a marathon, right? Or, no, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Thank there you. Words. <laughs> I'm not a writer for a living. Um, but but unless your credits literally say written by Stephanie Malik. Directed by Stephanie Malik, uh, performed by Stephanie Malik. If your credits aren't all one person's name, it's not just you. You don't get to take the credit for it. So acknowledge everyone else who had a part of it. Yeah, it's just like I think a lovely thing to do. And like, yeah, you can. That is a green flag. I agree. And yeah. frankly, when I see that kind of, you know, well, not just me, anybody um, in the industry, when you see that sort of written by, edited by, starring, directed by, produced by, director of photography, and it's all the same person, that's usually a red flag. Oh, 100%. It's like, or okay, so you can't work with others then, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's just a YouTube video by a kid. Or a high school film. I Myself and all of my friends would do that on our high school films. We'd do full credits, but just our name for every department. <laughs> okay, but that's like what you do in high school, yes, because right? you are every department. Yeah, you are. High yeah, school. you le legit Legitimately are, and you want the credit, damn it. <laughs> Heck yeah. Okay. Uh, so this is from Bruno on our Discord. Uh, the whole message of the movie feels less be true to yourself and more stick to what you know, which is a very dangerous message that Burton clearly took to heart in the next decades of his work. <laughs> Burton burn. Burnton? Bur Burnton. No, no I'm there Burnton. A, Burnton. There is a pun there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you got Burntoned. Nope. That's not it. Anyway. I don't know. I mean, you can absolutely interpret it that way, but I think it's more about looking around and appreciating what you have because the film doesn't end on, well, I guess I'm going to go back to making Halloween. It ends on him realizing that Sally has always been there for him and they're actually meant to be together. And I think it's more so about, yeah, appreciating what you have and the beauty in what you have because I wouldn't say uh, it's completely stick to what you know because as we discussed Santa does bring them Christmas they get yeah, to yeah. have and celebrate Christmas it's just they don't take over Christmas um so see what you're saying I still think you're wrong uh, uh I'm gonna bring in a hot take here because we haven't talked about the character of Sally much uh and when I watch the movie Sally's a bit of a wet blanket to me she's just a bit of like don't do it oh but I love you oh don't do it okay we're in love now uh, and what, like, I find her to not be a particularly compelling romantic interest for Jack. I don't feel like it's a very strong connection between them. And yet at the end, it's this big love story. Um, how do you feel about her portrayal in that movie and that character specifically? 
My feelings are colored by my love of Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> Disclaimer. Because fair, she's fair. perfect. Go yeah, perfect. on. I might have a mini fridge that she once used. <gasps> um, That's delightful. <laughs> it's not even plugged in. Bless your heart, Alex Markman. Bless your heart. <laughs> it's kind of like an extended pantry now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a box. It's a box with shelves. Yeah. Um... So I do agree. She is a bit one-dimensional. She does feel, uh, I honestly can't remember if she was in the original poem right now, but I honestly feel like not. Um, She does feel a bit added on uh, in a lot of ways. I don't see it so much as her being a wet blanket as that she is the only person to... I hate this terminology for obvious reasons. Give it to him straight. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, he's the king of Halloween town and he can do no wrong. And, you know, yeah, we'll all support you, Jack, even though this is clearly a nightmare, but we're all going to do it. And she's like, I don't think this is a good idea. And I mean, something I really appreciate in my relationships, romantic and friendships, I... I really like when someone will call me on my shit. Oh, I think that that's so important. I think it's so important. It's a sign so, of respect. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, to be able to say to someone, you know, with love, but hey, you're wrong. Yeah. Or maybe this isn't such a good idea. Or, you know, maybe this will end with the US military firing at you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I'm seeing a tree on fire. <laughs> and I, so I, I think this is more so the kids' version of that because you can't in a children's movie be like, Hey, you're kind of being a dick right now. Smack, yeah. <laughs> get out of it. Um, I do agree. I wish she was a bit more fleshed out. Um, well, because she... she's not made of real flesh. Ah. Ah. She's stuffed with leaves. She seems. is stuffed with leaves. She is yeah. stuffed with leaves. Um, but yeah, I I see value in that, and that I feel like she. This isn't quite the correct term. Uh, uh, obviously, but I, she kind of humanizes Jack. Mm, like yeah. everyone else elevates him, and she's the one that's willing to say, mm, maybe not. Uh, you know? Yeah, there is a healthy relationship dynamic in there. I do see that. That's a very good point. I also do like that she's portrayed as clever. Yes. Um, that's a thing that, like, you don't always get to see. She does get rescued and stuff. That It is kind of that classic damsel thing. But, like, the way she, her and Dr. Finkelstein, is that it? They just call him the doctor, the doctor. in the film. It is canonically Finkelstein, I think, yeah. because he's supposed to be Frankenstein. like Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It, but. Um, yeah, the way she like can outmaneuver him at all costs, like it's such a good way to show how smart she is, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which I which I appreciate because it makes all of the wet blanket stuff seem a little less like, oh, she's just being whiny and more like, no, she has insight. She's an insightful, smart person. Mm-hmm. Also psychic a bit? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> um, a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that... that Almost saves it for me. The thing that makes makes me not like Sally is I hate her song. Her it's song, the only song I hate. Yeah. It's, it's the, the only worst song I hate. Song, and I hate that that happens to like the the one of the only main female characters. I think it's only redeemed by the fact that Catherine O'Hara also sings "Kidnap the Sandy Claus." Yeah, hundred yeah, <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. don't worry, Catherine will get her moment. Yeah. yeah, but I do like that at least they she's smart and she is capable, and like even when she gets captured several times, she mm-hmm. uses her brain really well, and I do think that that's 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 uh, something. That's something. Uh, this one comes from a friend of the podcast, Jade, on Facebook. It says, it's dumb and also stupid that they haven't turned The Nightmare Before Christmas into a stage musical yet. No. 
You are wrong. Leave it <laughs> wow. alone. Whoa. Oh, that is not the take I thought that you would have. Uh, so I this I, I mentioned earlier that I have a bit of a hot take on this. Um, not on this specifically, but on another topic. I promise I will bring it back around. Ooh. It is related. No, go for it. Stop motion is such a labor of love. It costs so much money. It takes so much time. I don't believe you should tell a story in stop motion unless it can't be told any other way. Whoa. If you can imagine it as a live action film, make it as a live action film. If you can imagine it as a stage play, make it as a stage play because stop motion is so difficult and time consuming and expensive. And I love it. Like, if something is stop motion, I'm basically already in. I, yeah. As an art form, it absolutely blows me away. Always has. But unless like, it has to be told in stop motion, I don't think you should be telling it in stop motion. I can't imagine this as anything other than stop motion. Yeah. They have done concerts, like anniversary concerts, I think both with the original cast and with guest cast. That I'm all here for. I can't picture it as a stage musical. And I, you know, we have seen some Disney musical stage musicals are incredible. The Lion King, obviously being Amazing. the go-to one, but also the Lion King stage musical is so different from the film. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, but it, it really is the stage musical. It bears in a lot of ways, little resemblance to the film. Uh, Beauty and the Beast is a bit, I think closer to the film, but still really works as a stage musical. I would argue that Frozen works as a stage musical. I'm saying that as someone who has only ever seen two clips of it on YouTube. <laughs> Was one of them Let It Go by some chance? I have no idea what would have given you that impression. Look, they pulled off the dress change on that's stage. All we wanted to see. I'm all in. Yeah, that's true. Um, but they've also done a lot that really didn't take off, like Aladdin. The Little Mermaid, like Aladdin, yep. like Tarzan. And I don't want to see that happen to the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Leave it alone. Well, and part of what makes Jack so magical as a main character is the, his look. And if mm -hmm. you didn't have those proportions quite right, like in order to get a human to play that role, you'd either have to have them on like stilts up in the air with mm -hmm. like a, a hit. Like you couldn't accomplish what stop motion accomplishes in person without yeah. weird dimensions or, or puppetry. Yeah. It would need to be puppetry. And like it, it does seem so critical. Like I... This is not to harsh on anybody who dresses up as Jack, but when I, I have never seen a Halloween costume of Jack that I was like, that's it. Yeah. Because yeah. as soon as he has a body of exactly. any kind, any kind of size, I'm like, it's wrong. If he has any yeah. meat on him, it's not Jack. Yeah, and like, bone. It, there's and a reason they call him Bone Daddy in yeah. the film. <laughs> <laughs> My nickname in college. Yeah. <laughs> this, um, no. And like, obviously for a Halloween costume, wonderful. Like, that's yeah. great. You're doing a Halloween costume. Do it anyway. That's the But it doesn't but, look quite right. But for a musical, it wouldn't look right. Yeah, Absolutely. No. I do actually, like, strongly agree with that. And you were talking earlier about the walk cycles and how they're so unique to the characters and stuff. And obviously, yes, there are amazing actors out there who can completely adapt their body language. I'm thinking of Rami Malek and Bohemian Rhapsody and just how he completely becomes Freddie Mercury. Totally. Jack Skellington is not a human. <laughs> he does not move like a human. He doesn't move like a human. He doesn't look like a human. I just, I honestly can't see it working. The pieces are there, but I just, I don't think it would ultimately work. I think it would be really disappointing. Yeah, and yeah. I think if it did work, it would be A, a bit of a miracle, and B, the most expensive production of all time. All time. It would be wild how expensive that would be. <laughs> Come here for Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, Technically now a Disney musical, just putting that oh. in. 
out there. That's true. Bring it back. For, bring it back. For more on why Spider-Man should not be brought back, listen to our very first episode with Jocelyn <laughs> Getty. musical flops. Um, right before we jump on, this is your moment to air your hottest takes. Okay. You've got the mic. Okay. Let me let me uh, consult my, my little <laughs> list here. Um, we've actually covered a number of them. Um, one, I would say justice for shock. We talked about this, how they call them the boogie boys and they're not all boys. She's canonically a girl. Um, I, my personal theory, honestly, is that they were originally all boys. And then someone, probably the screenwriter who's a woman came on and was like, you have one woman in this entire film. And they Mm -hmm. went, ah, crap. But we already recorded the line where they say boogie boys, so that stays. (laughs) I was going to say it was the 90s. I don't know if anyone said, oh, crap, there weren't enough women at that point. (laughs) Perhaps the woman did, but like that's the problem with the 90s. There weren't enough of those either behind the scenes. Um, So that is, I don't know that that's that much of a hot take. Um, Something that came to mind for me, I was once chatting with this artist who goes by Wooded Woods on um, Instagram and Etsy. You should check out her stuff. She draws uh, and sometimes makes dolls very much in the style of Tim Burton. Um, And we were once chatting. uh, Her name's Camilla. I can't remember how to pronounce her last name, so I'm not going to say it. I'm sorry. Uh, It's really Polish. But she once said something to me, I'm paraphrasing here, but we were talking about the importance of films like The Nightmare Before Christmas and like Coraline, even though they are a little bit weirder and in the case of Coraline, scarier, but why films like that are important. And she said, you know, if we don't show kids movies like this and stories like this, what are they going to do when they feel like this? (gasps) Wow. And it, that has always... stayed with me and she just said this off the cuff and I was like wow, wow that's so, incredibly deep <laughs> yeah my uh and you know I was a scaredy cat growing up I've known as a horror writer and supernatural writer I there are certain things that I absolutely cannot watch at least without like broad daylight outside and a cat in my lap and preferably <laughs> someone else with me um <laughs> but part of the way I got over that was by watching movies like this so I think it is important to challenge kids and to show them things that are a bit outside the box, that are weirder, that are maybe scarier. Like, obviously, don't give your kid nightmares, but <laughs> challenge them. And uh, kids connect to this movie they do. so much. And young, young, young kids, mm-hmm. like kids that are like, oh, we knew, know a kid who was, it, it, he's like two years old and loves The Nightmare Before obsessed Christmas, with obsessed it. with it. And it's iconography that I think, had I been introduced to it when I was two years old, I would have been like, this is uh, this is terrifying. How dare you show this to me? But he was just like, yes, Jack Skellington's the best. And just became obsessed with it because I think uh, kids are much more adaptable uh, and open than we assume they are. Yeah, much mm-hmm. of the time they don't know things are scary until you tell them they're scary. Like, for instance, uh, that same kid is actually obsessed with the animated Yellow Submarine movie, which I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Nightmare. is way scarier yeah. than The Nightmare Before Christmas. That Absolutely. thing is a... That it, terrifying. It's, it's horrifying. Um, but yeah, I was that kid, you know, like you were that kid. Mm-hmm. We were those kids who watched and were like, this, yeah. Yeah, this, a hundred times this. And like since then, I always loved monsters and yeah. like associated with monsters and felt like monsters were a safe zone for, you know, us weirdos, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Couple of others. Um, <laughs> let Henry Selick complete his projects, damn it. So he had a movie 
in development, in production at Disney called The Shadow King, and it, they had spent $50 million on it. And I think, it, like, um, the the story I've heard is that John Lasseter, who was there at the time, kept interfering, but they literally shut it down and destroyed the sets. And this film no. was never completed, and Gosh. it sounded beautiful and amazing. And I just... Someone rescue the Shadow King. Oh Please goodness. let this film come to light. He was also directing the pilot based on the video game Little Nightmares, which I absolutely love. Please release the pilot of Little Nightmares. I know, like, obviously, as a screenwriter, I know so many pilots just die in development. Yeah, but there was this devastating. beautiful little period of time when Amazon was releasing all the pilots that they made. And, I mean, they were doing it just to, I think, see viewership and then decide which shows would actually go into production. Oh, which, you mean like pilots were originally designed for? <laughs> yes. Um, which I have mixed feelings about. And I, the show wasn't at Amazon, but I'm just saying, please release. Pilot. I want to see it so badly. I love the game. I love Henry Selleck. Give it to me. Um, but my real hot take, which we've already kind of covered, is please just leave the Nightmare Before Christmas alone. Like, don't don't make a stage musical. Please don't make a live action adaptation, oh, which ha- they have occasionally talked about. No, um, no. why? No, no. Or why? No. Just don't do it. They did just release a book, which supposedly, which I, well, does serve as a sequel from Sally's point of view. And I was looking at it at Hot Topic the other day, like the grown-ass <laughs> woman that I am. Oh, I go to Hot, Hot Topic, Topic all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, someone came up to me, another shopper came up to me and said it was really good, and they were in Hot Topic, so obviously they're a Nightmare Before Christmas fan. So <laughs> allegedly it's good. I, I, I will look at it eventually and make up my own mind, but please just leave the Nightmare Before Christmas alone. Yes, I think that people see that little circle of doors at the beginning of the film, um, and they think, oh, like there's so many stories to tell in this world. There's the Thanksgiving door and the St. Patrick's Day door, and on top of all the reasons we have discussed to not go through those doors, no, <laughs> I would say it. as a writer, world building is not the same as a springboard. And just because it is a rich, believable world, it does not mean that that is automatically a springboard for more stories. Totally. Because these characters' stories are finished. Yes. Yes. We wrapped them up beautifully. Their arcs are done. They learned their lesson. They lived happily ever after. Just please leave it alone. Honestly, finish more stories. Yeah. Just in yeah. general. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Right? Like, not everything has to have a sequel or a series or a spinoff. Or, or a prequel series. or a threequel. Or a, stop it. Some, Some stories are just stories. Yeah, and that's okay. It's okay to enjoy something and then let it go. That's all. That's well, all. Got real that quiet there. Great, oh. No, I was just ending it. truly appreciating the callback to Frozen. There. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> oh, what I was happening. Um, so, uh, at the end of every episode, we like to share our micro-fandoms of the week, which we will do in just a moment. But before we do, let's talk about how, uh, if you would like, you can support the show. Number one, you're doing it. You listened. So, thank you so much. It thank means you. so much that you listened to this and that you enjoyed it. And we, all we really want to do is just bring some extra love and joy into the world. So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and you can always reach out to us or follow us. Uh, send us feedback. Uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Hive now. Uh, we'll figure out how that works. Uh, at Fandom Show Pod, and we love hearing from you. We also have a Discord that you can come and chat with us on the From Superheroes Discord, uh, and we go in there and have great conversations with um, a lot of different people, a lot of listeners. Uh, we get into some stuff, and we do have a Hot Takes channel where you can just chat about your hot takes on things. 
Heck yes. Um, yeah, uh, please tell all of your nerdiest friends about us, um, or just tell everyone. Tell your parents at, at, at the holidays this tell year. Tell your dentist if you're getting a cleanup right before you go celebrate. Absolutely. Part of the mission of this show is to spread fandom to everybody, and that it's not just about, you know, like, message boards and stuff. Everybody has a fandom, and it's a beautiful thing, and learning about them is awesome. So... In order to get that message, to get all of this stuff out, we would love it. It would be amazing if you could do a little rate, review, and subscribe, um, principally on Apple Podcasts, but you can do this on all of the podcast providers. Even just a one sentence or a one word review can help us move up in the charts. Yeah, like hashtag justice for shock. Justice for shock. Justice exactly. for shock. Justice for shock or whatever else you want to put. It would mean the world to us and it would help make sure that we can get positive fandom out to as many people as possible. Let's be number one in every country. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's I do believe it. in us. <laughs> uh, and this show will always be free. But if you're like, hey, you know what? I got this money burning a hole in my pocket for some reason. You can send it to us and we would really appreciate it. Uh, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the fandom show where you can throw a couple of your hard earned dollars our way. Uh, for a couple of bucks a month, you can listen to episodes early. You can get a shout out on our podcast or even submit hot takes for upcoming episodes. And we recently, uh, this month, released our very first patron-only exclusive podcast called The Fan Club, which is Kaya and I talking about the things that we're fanning out over. So imagine our micro-fandoms, but mid mid bigger bigger <laughs> um when you say this month this when this comes out will be last month no 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 this is coming out on the the 13th oh yeah december. it's december and, oh no kaya's forgot <laughs> oh, the no. month i'm lost this is the month you should remember the most because your birthday's coming up what time is it uh kaya's birthday's on the 22nd just so everyone knows if you want to wish kaya a happy birthday i'm happy aging early birthday kaya Happy early birthday, Thank you. Kaya. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. But yes, our most recent uh, episode that came out on the 1st of December uh, is about our love of Jeopardy. Uh, so we talk about it. We talk strategies. We talk about uh, the Tournament of Champions that's just happened. And then we challenged ourselves to the Jeopardy Anytime quiz. And you can guess how that might have went. But if you <laughs> want to find out for sure, you can subscribe uh, and hear that panic for yourself. Are we smart? Decide for yourself. <laughs> Uh, so please check it out. Uh, thank you so much for your support in any which way you choose to give it, be it uh, verbal, be it listening, be it whatever. We appreciate you so, 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 so much. Also, our theme song is by the amazing Yusu Kim, and our logo is by John Blair. And now for our micro-fandoms of the week, starting with you, Steph. What What is your micro-fandom of this week? So I'm not a, a super huge uh, podcast listener in general, um, partly because if my hands aren't doing something, I can't, I, I have to, I lose focus very easily. So podcasts are challenging uh, for me to listen to sometimes, but I recently went on a long drive and started a podcast called Stealing Superman. And what it is is a story about Nicolas Cage and how his number one action comics, uh, Superman comic, was stolen from his house along with a few other valuable comics. And it's diving into the world of art theft uh, with a lens on comics, uh, because apparently at this, like just before that, this happened to another guy on the other side of the country. It's a whole drama. I'm only on episode five. I don't know how it ends, um, but I'm really enjoying hearing about uh, both uh, comic collections and just what a character Nicolas Cage is. Oh boy, boy, that guy. I want to go to his house. Apparently the walls are purple and it's very gothic. Like he turned his mansion into a bit of a castle because he just like, I have money. I want to surround myself with weird shit. What a and guy. And then he did. Um, so it's uh, called Stealing Superman. It's by the same person who does uh, one of the other podcasts I like called Noble Blood. 
um, which is just about famous, wealthy nobles who do bad things. Also a great podcast. Uh, Shout out to Dana Schwartz. You did it! Ah! I love that podcast so much. Uh, she's great. And she actually does uh, Stealing Superman as well. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, I know so, what I'm listening to. Yeah, it's a very fun story so far, uh, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so that's what I'm nerding out about. Kaya! What about you? What are you nerding about? I am a big fan of YouTube video essays. I've, I've spoken true. about this in the past. Um, Steph, uh, I, thankfully, will put up with it sometimes when I'm just like, can we watch a video essay? I play solitaire. That's right. Um, <laughs> because they just tickle my brain in a way I like. I've discussed this before, but right now I'm specifically obsessed, and I know I'm a, a late... Late uh, to this train, but I'm specifically obsessed with philosophy tube. Um, I've been a big fan of a lot of like left tube, as they refer to themselves, or what? people refer to them <laughs> left tube. It's like a, a, a oh no segment of YouTube where it's like contrapoints and philosophy tube and a bunch of like different things that talk about philosophy or politics or things like that. Um, so. Yeah, I've been a fan of ContraPoints before, but I only just now got around to listening to Philosophy Tube. And man, I love Abigail Thorne so much. Uh, I just find the way she explains things to be so interesting. And I just, I love having a nice, funny person talk to me about philosophy for an hour. That just, ooh, ooh, it gets my brain to places that are just comforting and nice. And do we exist? Does anyone exist? Does it matter? Can't we all just be nice to each other? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's me. Alex, what are you nerding out about this week? Uh, well, lately I've been playing this kind of niche little video game. I don't think anyone's heard of it called Gotham Knights. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, based on characters from uh, this little known comic world called the Batman universe. Oh, like, I've uh, heard of that. Yeah. yeah I've heard of it. Wow. Um, no, but uh, I am playing Gotham Knights right now, but um, in terms of micro-fandom, uh, something I discovered the other day that I'm really nerding out about, uh, I discovered that Leica, the stop-motion studio that made Coraline, Paranorman, a bunch of other amazing stop-motion films, um, if you know me in real life, you know I'm a bit of a sneakerhead, and I found out that Leica just partnered with Converse to do uh, sneakers based on their major properties. And they're somewhat customizable, or you can do the classic, uh, or like the initial Leica style. Um, but they're super cool, and that's where all my money's gonna go, so. Cool, Sick. I love that. Sick. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you, and is there anything you wanna plug? Uh, thank you so much for having me. I am at MarkWoman on basically all social media, though I really only use Instagram and and Twitter, as long as we have Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> we might not when this comes out. Uh, we don't know. We will see. Uh, I, I have a Mastodon as well that I don't know how to use, <laughs> but that, that's there. Um, and that's where you can find me uh, in terms of stuff to plug. Uh, well, it's December, which means it's going to be dumb week at the Beaverton in a few weeks. So yes, keep dumb week. Uh, keep your eyes out for whatever uh, dumbassery they allow me to write up this month. <laughs> Uh, and please play Gotham Knights. We just released a free update called Heroic Assault, which is free four-player co-op. Uh, and I'm the game is out, and I'm I'm really proud of it. So yeah, go out and buy Gotham Knights. Amazing. And also go watch Astrid and Lily save the world. Oh yeah, uh, right. It's it's like cool modernized uh, Buffy with just two awesome young women. Yeah, at the helm. Awesome. Yes, please go watch Astrid and <laughs> Lily. Uh, also very proud of Astrid and Lily. You can find it on the Sci-Fi app, or in Canada, you can find it on. Find it on Crave TV. 
Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And uh, till next time, love the things you love and tell everyone about them. Bye. The Fandom Show is produced by Andrew Ivamy as part of the From Superheroes Network. For more great podcasts like this, as well as webcomics, articles, and so much more, visit FromSuperheroes.com.